Okay, hi, this is Kingsley again, and this morning I have with me a good pal, Anita Sands, who's an Irish native, a graduate of uh, Queen's University, a PhD from Queen's, and a master's from Carnegie Mellon. But um, Anita, just maybe to just set the context, could you just give me a, a sort of a quick summary of how you, you're in San Francisco now, how your career went since Carnegie Mellon, and the steps along the way, and where you're at now? Absolutely, Kingsley, and thanks for the opportunity to chat with you. I feel like a little bit fraudulent here because most of what I'm going to say, I bet I've learned from you over the years. <laughs> and I've been the great beneficiary of, of your mentorship and input. But um, I'm originally from, from County Louth, and I left Ireland about 17 years ago to go to graduate school in Pittsburgh, as you mentioned. And from there, um, I had studied public policy at graduate school, and um, from there I went to Toronto, Canada where I lived for seven years and my career moved, I have a lot of pivots along the way, so I pivoted out of uh, public policy and academia into the world of banking. And I spent about a decade in financial services and during the course of that time, my career took me back to New York. So I then lived in New York for six years mm -hmm. and I decided about three or four years ago that I was ready for another pivot and that I wanted the next chapter of my career to be in tech. And I wanted also to be based in Silicon Valley where it was all happening. And uh, so I moved out to San Francisco now a couple of years ago. Uh, I now work in the technology industry and I work as a corporate board director on um, three public company boards. I think here we call them uh, non-exec directors. And uh, that's what I'm doing um, and really enjoying it. And tell me, Anita, you use that word pivot. I love that word pivot. Um, I associate it with sport in a way, pivoting from side to side. But in that pivoting action that you took, um, because I'm interested in the whole networking, how important were the networks that you developed? And, and was that something that you consciously did or did it just happen? I mean, Kings, I think my network, I think everyone's network is possibly their most valuable and strategic asset nowadays. And my network has been critical throughout the entire course of my life and my career to date. I tell everybody that, you know, there's a thread that kind of connects my entire journey and a big part of it is an Irish thread. And being a, a member of the Irish diaspora, a member of that kind of global family, when I, for example, when I moved to Canada, I had never set foot in Toronto until the night I drove across the border at the age of 27 with all of my worldly goods in the back of a U-Haul truck. And the only person I knew there was my mother's first cousin, whom I'd met a couple of times back at home as a child. He introduced me to another friend of his who was Irish who invited me to the Canadian Ireland Fund's St. Patrick's Day luncheon. I'm sure you've probably been yeah. to that over the years. It's a pretty big event. And while there, I met a lady from Dublin who was running uh, debt capital markets for one of the Canadian banks. And uh, somebody introduced me as this sort of new Irish kid in town. And she said, what are you doing? And I told her I was working at the University of Toronto. And she said, have you ever thought about a career in banking? And I said, well, no. And she said, well, why don't you come in and, and chat to us? And that then led me to, to going to work at CIBC and subsequently on to my, my other jobs and my career in financial services. So everywhere I went, uh, my network was critical. I, I don't know whether it's a good or a bad thing to say that I've never actually applied for a job in my life. That wow. everyone has come up about in some way or another through my network. And a big part of that being the Irish network, of course. And Anita, you know, the skills of networking is that nature or nurture is that something that people are in, intrinsically born with or is it something you can get better at and acquire 
I, I personally think like like all skills, um, maybe some people have a more natural predisposition towards it. Uh, they might be more extroverted. They might find it that comes more natural to them. However, I think it's such a critical business skill, such a critical professional skill to have that it is one that we can teach. It is one that you can learn. It is one that you can consciously get better at. And I do think there's a few kind of core elements to that. You're an expert in it, Kingsley, but in, in my mind, the way that I've always thought about networking was just, I liked making connections with people. And I went into every, whether it was an event or every, say you would call it maybe a networking opportunity with the attitude of what can I give? How can I help? How can I contribute? It was never with a mindset of what can I get? Or what can I take? Or how can this person help me? It was never with a what's in it for me kind of a mindset. And I had a very great mentor in, in Canada once. And a Canadian guy. And he said, you know, human reciprocity is one of the strongest values out there. One of the strongest human characteristics. Never forget the power of reciprocity. I remember thinking, wow, I'm not sure I know what that word means, but <laughs> what I really learned is that, you know, when you do somebody a good turn, when you do somebody a favor, they are, you know, most people are good people and they're more inclined to, to help you out down the road if they can. So I've always sort of thought about giving way more than I could ever hope to get, but I have found that in, in doing so, through the power of my network, that I have received more and gotten more opportunity and more help and more advice and more support along the way than I ever could have could have imagined. And you also mentioned another word there early in your answer, which was uh, mentor, mentoring. How important was that in your life cycle? Absolutely critical. I, I think that, you know, I think life is about being committed to ongoing learning and discovery. Mm -hmm. And I think mentors are such a critical part of, of that journey. I actively, again, I don't know Kingsley, maybe in retrospect, some of this was more by accident than by design, but I'm very fortunate to look back and say that networking was one of the things that I realized early on was very important. Mentoring was another thing that I realized very early on was very important. And I actively cultivated my mentors along the way. I had mentors inside work and outside of work. I had mentors who were male and mentors who were female, which I think is important for any professional woman. And you do outgrow your mentors. There's times when you move on in life and you know they're not able to help you as much as they once were, and that's okay. Um, but I also think there's a great art to being a good mentee that again it's part of this reciprocity it's part of this relationship building you have to be you have to come to the table with something it's not all about what they can do for you but also you have to be willing to be vulnerable to open the kimono to ask for help and and if you're willing to do that I describe you know in a lot of professional contexts I tell young people young graduates you know mentors are like parents at work <laughs> Right? They'll sometimes tell you what you don't want to hear, but something that you desperately need to hear in order to not kind of step on those self-explosive devices that you might along yeah. the way. Yeah. Yeah. So, you, you know, we agree and we all agree that networking is critically important, but still at age 27, when you hit Canada, didn't know anybody. Um, you know, no school or college teaches networking. Um, companies generally don't seem to have strategies for networking. So why is that? You know, I, that's a really great question. Um, I guess it's just been one of those skills that is, you know, I think there is more emphasis nowadays on the softer skills than there used to be, which I really welcome. And I do think as a part of that, networking will come to the fore. I think companies have assumed it as being sort of an implicit uh, skill that people bring with them. 
Um, I think great salespeople in every organization, sort of their Rolodex, their network is a huge part of the asset that they bring when they go from one company to another. So I do think in sort of this, you know, such a connected world that we now live in, that that networking element is going to be explicitly seen as a real asset. And let me give you an example. So we, we just talked about how networking and mentorship was important when I was younger. Very recently, I was asked to give a reference for somebody um, for a CEO role uh, at a company in Silicon Valley. And one of the board members of the company contacted me and you know, very formidable character in Silicon Valley context. And uh, he said, I know we haven't met, I know you by reputation and so forth, but he said in this connected little bubble of Silicon Valley who are all so well networked, I imagine we'll know a lot of similar people and are connected people. I said, okay. And he said, the reason I ask is that I'd like you to tell me before you give me this reference, who are the leaders that you've worked with most in the Valley that you most admire? Who are the people that you think are formidable executives? And, and sort of why. So I, I you know, rolled off the top of my tongue a couple of the CEOs I've worked with, a few other board members that I know. And he said, the reason I asked that is that he said, once you kind of mention who you think is very formidable, I, I know those people, obviously. I now have a sense of your benchmark, of what you consider to be a world-class leader, a world-class executive. And therefore, when you and I talk about this candidate, I now have a source of reference for what you think great looks like. And I remember being so taken aback that I'd never been asked to give a reference like that in that kind of a context. And afterwards, I put down the phone and I said, wow, that guy was doing his reference check entirely based on the fact that he and I belonged in the same network and knew the same people and therefore would think about them in maybe perhaps the same way, perhaps differently. But the network was the core element of that reference check. And I think, you know, I think in today's world, that is going to become increasingly more important because let's face it, information about anybody is available. It's out there. Your bio is easily you know, traceable. Your record is easily you know, uh, researchable. You can find somebody's entire career on LinkedIn or you can look at their profiles on Twitter or whatever else. That's all out there. A lot of that content can be curated if you so wish it to be. So I think even in an age where information is so more readily available about people, about things, about companies, about deals, about anything else, what you're going to rely on most is the power of that human connection to get to somebody that actually knows that individually, personally, and has worked at that company and has a personal experience. And the only way you'll get to that kind of information is through your network. That's really fascinating stuff. I mean, one of the one of the things I sometimes say is that we are the average of the people we hang around with. Would you buy into that notion? Absolutely, without a doubt. And I think that should be a moving average. Yeah, moving average, <laughs> yeah, changing. I think it should be. Progress I, yeah, it should be organic. Yeah. So you've worked, and I know some of the people you've worked with, they're really formidable and, and extremely successful business people and people. Um, what would you say the characteristics of the best networking people that you've worked with? What are those characteristics? Um, well, I think what I've touched on before, like generous, generosity of spirit. I mean, because you're a great example of this. You are so willing and so generous to connect some people in your network to others in your network where you think that would be mutually beneficial to them, you know, to broker that relationship. So I think that generosity of, of spirit, I think having no expectations that you'll get something in return is, is a core element of people that are naturally good at this. 
And I think, you know, it, it's sort of very pragmatic things like having the character and the integrity to follow up with somebody. If you say, I'll connect you to so-and-so, you do it, you follow through. Um, and I do think that, again, in this world where we're now appreciating the softer side of, of executives and leadership and, and so forth, there's a real importance to being a genuine and authentic leader and to be genuine and authentic in your interactions. And I therefore think when I thought about who, you know, great networkers, what are their skill sets, what are their characteristics, I, I think about people who are incredibly genuine and sincere in their interactions, and that becomes a core part of their leadership DNA. Mm-hmm. What about trust? I mean, the Edelman Trust Survey comes out every year, and it says, the latest one says that trust in four institutions, media, business, nonprofits, um, and the media, um, is at its lowest level in history, you know, how, how about networking and trust as an issue? Well, I think they're kind of, um, you know, symbiotic. They're, they're sort of two sides of the same coin. It's very hard to have a network of, of value and one that is uh, something you cherish and something that can be valuable to others if trust isn't a core part of that. Um, I do think we're living in this, you know, they talk about whether we're living in sort of this post-truth, post-trust yes. era. Um, and I do think we've created a, a, a big vacuum in that regard and a big leadership vacuum uh, kind of in, in certain spheres of business and political life. And uh, I think that's true globally. So more than ever, I think for, for institutions, for faith in institutions and systems to be restored, it's going to take morally courageous leaders and it's going to take a network of those kind of like-minded people. Yeah. What about, because um, I, I like the notion of, I call it funnels of serendipity, luck uh-huh. and chance, you know, would you would you subscribe to my notion that you can actually kind of shape luck and make it happen for you? Without a doubt. I mean, what is you know, fortune favors those in motion, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's funny. It's one of those words that comes up a lot in interviews with women in particular. So when I'm interviewing a female candidate for a job and you ask them about their journey and whatever, a woman will often say, well, I was very lucky I got an opportunity. I was very fortunate to have this great boss. I was so lucky I got this role and whatever. And I always, I was always intrigued by the fact that that is a word that is used far more frequently by women than by men, right? And what I, you know, when I say, actually I've stopped candidates in interviews and I said, do you think it's only women that are lucky? Do you think, you don't think that men as, a human, as part of the human species are just as equally, you know, likely to be lucky? to be fortunate? Of course they are. So that's a normative kind of characteristic or a normative opportunity. Why do we attribute more of our success to it than than men do? Um, But I do think serendipity is, again, it's back to reciprocity, Kingsley. I think, you know, what goes around comes around, as cliched as that sounds. And I I, I do think when you're out there, when you've met more people, when you know more people, I, I just can't, I can't even begin to give you the number of examples of opportunities that have come my way uh, that you might call them luck, you might call them serendipity. I would think about them as perhaps the harvesting of a lot of seeds that were sowed for many, many years along the way with no expectation that there ever would be a harvest mm. or any benefit down the road to me, and yet there has been. And what about, because you touched on it just then, your answer, but is networking different for men and for women? I do think so in a couple of ways. Um, I think that men inherently network more naturally. I think 
traditionally, and I mean in a corporate context here, there have been more opportunities for men to do that. So, you know, there's been a lot written and researched about the role of kind of these social after work get togethers or the round of golf or, you know, whatever, and whether or not women were excluded from those social networks in a corporate context. And that end up, ended up being uh, disadvantageous to them. I do think there's an element of that that's true. I, I think, again, as a woman, and I certainly have been conscious of it uh, along the way because I don't play golf, perhaps the only Irish person that does, as <laughs> I felt at times. Um, but I think you have to sort of insert yourself into those networks, into those sort of social opportunities where you can. But I do think women, therefore, need to do a better job at this. I think we need to be better networked among ourselves. I think we have to leverage each other's networks more effectively. I think we have to encourage and, and, and teach young women how to build their networks and how to see their networks as a very valuable resource. And to basically do kind of what men have been doing more naturally for a much longer time. Um, those networks should not be gender exclusive, right? So you're yeah. going to be well networked if you're networked well amongst men and women. Um, but again, it, I guess it comes back to King's earlier point about this being such a critical skill that people need to learn. And the earlier in your career you learn it, the better. And what about, uh, because you have some personal experience of this, networking and child rearing? Ah, yes. <laughs> um, you know, so, well, do you mean in the context of, uh, is this something you should try and teach your children to be good at? No, more or, so, you know, you, you now have some added responsibilities right. and commitments time-wise. Yeah, and yeah. if networking is about being out and about and attending events and being yeah. seen and be seen and all that, that's harder. It is harder. But again, I would go back to the question of why should it be harder for women than for men? Mm -hmm. So I'm a great proponent of, you know, Sheryl Sandberg's you know, statement of make your partner an equal partner. Mm -hmm. And I talk about the importance of, of women kind of demanding that their partner take on 50% of the responsibility at home. Yes, we may be historically, culturally ingrained to do more of that, but, but why is that the case? And uh, I give two examples, Kings. This is slightly deviating from the networking topic, but it is about it is about responsibility, shared responsibility, and it is about you're quite right the allocation of your time. Right? You have 168 hours in the week, so do I. Right? So does my husband. The question is, how are we dividing those 168 hours between the two of us at any given time? You're never going to find work-life balance in a given day. It's just not possible. But you may find it over the course of a given week or a given month or a given year. And I think as a family, you need to think about it as, as well, right? So I, I say that, you know, right now I'm a wife, I'm a mother, and I'm a professional uh, woman. I can be good at two of those three things every day, not all three, right? right? Mm -hmm. And I try and balance it that way. Um, but I also think it's important, I, I, I tell, uh, advise a lot of women to, to not, not do housework at work either right and and sometimes that means you have to let certain things go right if you're going to be at a networking event one evening it just may mean that the ironing is not going to get done okay well then how does the ironing get done your husband can do the ironing or you can outsource the ironing to somebody else right you have to think about it that way and i use the great story of the sock on the stair i don't know if you've ever no. if you've ever come across that so um, once i was there was a sock a random sock kind of on the second stair in our house and it bugged me so much that the sock was lying there. It was one of our, 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 our daughter Rosie's socks. And it's a pink sock. It's glaring you stereo straight in the face. You can't really miss it, right? And yet John, my husband, who's a great partner and he really is a 50-50 kind of guy, he walked up and down the stairs for about three or four days without seeing the sock. And I pointed it out to him. I said, do you not see the sock on the stairs? He was like, what sock? 
And I said, the one that's been lying there for three days. So, and I said, John, I'm not picking up the sock. I said, because I realized that for all of my life, for all of our marriage, I would pick up the sock and I would put the sock in the hot press with the other socks. And I would do that and I would see that as being my responsibility, but there's no reason why it should be. So John then, being the funny kind of guy that he is, took the sock and he moved it halfway up the stairs plus one. And he said, look, I'm just, I'm doing my part. I moved it halfway up plus one extra stair. So I then subsequently the next day moved it two further steps up. And eventually <laughs> by the end of the following week, yeah. the sock had made it to the top of the, top of the yeah. stairs. Now yeah. it became a bit of a running joke between yeah. us, but it got the point across that, 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 you know, whether it's something as trivial as a sock on the stairs or something as meaningful as who's going to show up for the PTA meeting at school for the kids or who's going to be the one that picks the kid up when they're, you know, sick at school or whatever. It has to be a 50-50 allocation. And, and that's the only way I think that women are going to be able to truly balance the demands of a, a um, professional life and a personal life. What about the topic of unconscious bias? which impacts so much in our lives and yet it's imperceptible in some ways. Uh, I think it was a whole other, we could do a whole other podcast yeah, on that. Yeah. I, I really do think it's, it's, it's such a key part. I, I've, I've written a little bit about this. I kind of, my, my phrases are these micro behaviors, right? Like kind of little things that happen every day um, that add up over time, cumulatively to create a set of sort of uh, cultural or societal norms. And, and I do think part of that is sort of the role of, of women and men and um, and particularly in the workplace. I, I sort of talked about, you know, it's everything from having lived and worked now in the United States for, for, for 17 years. I've been shocked, including in the boardroom, by how many times American sports analogies are used to describe practically everything in business. And one of our new CEOs of one of my companies recently said, well, you know, we got to move from a running game to a passing game, or I don't know whether he said a passing game to a running game. <laughs> and I just, I literally, because now I'm at the point where I'm not going like, to just sit there and look stupid anymore. And I said, I'm sorry, but can somebody please explain what you mean by that, right? <laughs> but for so many years, they were, we were playing in the major leagues and we were batting it out of the park and we were... Yeah. What, what does this stuff mean yeah. and that's sort of a little small unconscious yeah. bias a little micro behavior that is meaningful to somebody that's sitting in a boardroom that doesn't come from the same country right um but then equally just sort of you know there, i can't tell you how many times i've been in meetings and non-for-profit boards over the years and they'd say right well we should take down these action items somebody should take the minutes and all eyes would turn to me as the only woman in the room and i'm like why am i the only one skilled enough here to take the minutes lads i think you're all fairly confident you know um so you do have to be you do have to be aware of it you know so listen what do you tell your 18 year old rosie as she's setting out on her career in terms of networking oh it's it's um well one of the things i haven't touched on is that networking to me and again, it sort of, I guess it goes hand in hand with the role of mentors, was such a critical part of building and improving my self-awareness. And one of the things I tell young graduates is work on your self-awareness and get your head around who you are, the good things, the bad things, your strengths and your weaknesses, and do it as early on in your career as you can. And I use this sort of a question in interviews where I ask people to give me three words that somebody who likes them would use to describe them. People generally don't have a hard time with that. And then I say, okay, give me three words somebody who doesn't like you would use to describe you, right? And it's, a, it's always very insightful to me, the people that stumble on that answer. 
because to me that's indicative of not having a level of self-awareness and the other reason why self-awareness is important is that you don't derail because of your weaknesses you derail in life because of your strengths that you take to an extreme best example of this in the corporate context right now is travis kalanak at uber right everything that made him successful and uber successful this sort of notion of asking for forgiveness and not permission and you know sort of just breaking the rules and breaking glass all over the world that is what got uber to where they were unfortunately that is just sort of innate to this guy's dna and it it went too far he went to the dark side of that strength and that then sort of became inducive to the culture at the company inducive to the dynamics in the boardroom inducive to a lot of their legal battles around the world it just went too far i wish somebody had helped tk with his self-awareness earlier on in his life so to me, that's where my network has been invaluable. Having people that were willing to point things out to me opened my eyes. I had a mentor once who said, Anita, I'm trying to improve your peripheral vision, right? And see the second and third order effects of what you're saying and doing. And uh, so uh, again, you can't place a value on how important that is to a young executive. And you won't get that by sitting in a corner by yourself or reading a book. You need it to be something that other people who know you, who have, uh, who have an interest in you, who care about you, who are objective about you. Um, you need those people to point it out to you. So mm. I've always felt your critics are your best friends, mm. if you're willing to think about them that way. Mm. And, uh, and your network is such a, a wonderful, invaluable way to cultivate that kind of input. Well, Anita, I could be here all day, and maybe we will another day. I'd love to do more, but just because of time. Final question, and you look into your crystal ball, and it's 10 years from now, you know, how do you see networking changing or less important, more important, uh, more technology driven, less, uh, you know, more interpersonal driven? What, what do you see happening in that space? I think more technology enabled, perhaps, right? I think, you know, you see the power of platforms like LinkedIn, like LinkedIn and so forth. But I really did reflect on this, Kingsley, before we got together. And I feel, just like I mentioned earlier, in a world where information is so readily available and you can control to a certain extent the information that is out there about you or about your company, we are going to be more and more reliant on that human interpersonal connection, uh, that human, that interpersonal insight than ever before. So I see it as being something that it is easier to be more networked right we, you know you can so you can literally literally know where any member of your family is by virtue of your phone it will be a technology enabled uh, and facilitate that but i think the essence of that human to human connection that social capital it's going to become increasingly valuable in the well, future we are well 100 agree and you know you can't compete on what everybody knows uh, you know, you, you just, everybody knows. So, so your networks really provide you with all sorts of extra information. Nita, as I said, I could talk all day, and I hope we do another day. Thank you so much for this. My really pleasure. appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. That was brilliant. Thank you so much for that. That was twenty six minutes.